0: Good morning. I want to thank you, having lived in Vancouver for a long time, that when I come back to visit, you turned off the rain. Um, that's been great. It's been great. After I preach today, I will head home. Um, my wife and I were in England for almost a month. Then we had three days in Kelowna before I headed out this way. She said quite wisely, as females can do, A month is enough. You go. So, I went, and I'm about to go home and maybe settle down for a week or two. It's been good to be here, and I'm excited about what I want to say this morning. Uh, It's not the first time I've ever said it, but going over the notes in the last few days, I go, yeah, this is where I am. This is what I believe. You have notes with you from last week, and I will save time by only saying to you, The notes about last week summarize a message that said, in terms of discipleship, there is a gentle side and there is a hard side. The gentle side is the invitation to come to Jesus and for us to become what we can become. It's not an invitation to type A personalities or to eggheads or to anybody else. It's to ordinary people to be what God can make them to be. And then the other part of it, and yet it is a hard call, hard in the sense of intentional and serious. It's not about sentiment or security or just adding Jesus to our social calendar. The call is to enroll in his school. And that's appropriate as we face Labor Day and all the kids going back to school. And the issue is, then, what are we to learn? What is the curriculum? What's in the syllabus? And that's what I will be dealing with today. But I want to make a side trip. I don't know why I do this. It's probably because, like my son, Cameron, who's probably a bit of a chip off the old block, um, I'm concerned for the renewal of the church, and I look forward and I say, Well, anyway, whatever I do and say, let me make a very brief side trip, have a prayer, and then get into the meat of today. The side trip is how do people today, how will they in this culture truly learn for things have changed dramatically given all of the technology and the shifts of um, multiculturalism and all the rest of it. I think they are not going to learn much just through sermons anymore. There was a day and age when people had nothing else to do but to come out to church on Sunday night to hear a second sermon because it was, if you heard a good preacher, a form of not entertainment but of fulfillment. It is not that way anymore. And if we are to create disciples the way Jesus envisioned them, it's going to have to go beyond sermons and lectures and seminars. Maybe, Maybe, and this may sound facetious, it's not meant to. Maybe we might rediscover what Jesus did. And he did not lecture to them. He lived with them. And he lived with them for three years. And they saw him laugh and cry and get angry and get anguished and get passionate and be tender and be harsh and the whole bit. But they walked around with him. They ate, slept, laughed, drank, cried, the whole bit with Jesus. And I think discipleship will only come in the future, through relationships and not through seminars. I was asked this week, I happen to be in Victoria, and somehow sometimes you can't escape work, although I don't see it that way, but somebody said, Bob, knowing that you've done all kinds of seminars on groups and so forth, I have an idea, said this particular pastor, of how groups might work in our church going forward. And... um, I'm not a cranky old man. I'm certainly getting old, but I don't think I'm cranky. But I listened and I said to him, Sam, not his real name, it won't work. You cannot just say to people, here's how to do small groups. You're going to have to gather together some people who have a passion to be the kind of group that they ought to be and you're going to have to be part of that group for a year or two because when you're finished with that you won't have to tell them anything. They will do it. So for the one who's written booklets and seminars and all the rest of it are in small groups, become less and less convinced <clears throat> that you teach people in a class. You show them in a life together. And may I recommend to us, whether it's in discipleship or any form of education or raising up leaders in the church, that before you do anything, you get together with Robin Williams and you sit down and watch Dead Poets Society and you say to yourself, hey, is there something we need to do to get a group of people who are disillusioned and model them and mold them into people who are excited, not about poetry or about the classics as in Robin Williams' case, but about Jesus. Well, there's my side trip, there's my propaganda, there's my preliminary introduction. Let's pray, and then I will preach. Let us pray. Break thou the bread of life, dear Lord, to me, as you did break the loaves beside the sea, but beyond the sacred page, we want to seek you, Lord. Our spirits long for you, for you are the living word. Amen. The scriptures that were read to us so well today were the scriptures in which, on five occasions, Jesus specifically said, This is what a disciple is. He'd invited them to come gently, intentionally, and he says, Now I'm going to teach you. Enroll in my school. Learn from me what a disciple is. This is in no particular order. And the five things that I will share are surely not the only things one would ever say about discipleship. It's just simply saying, hey, would you like to know what Jesus thought discipleship is about? So I chose, first of all, because it fits my schemata, the word love from John 13:34 to 35. By this, everybody will know you are my disciples. You see, there it is. You want to know what a disciple is? A disciple is a person who knows how to love. Now, as with Shakespeare, I might quickly add, but here's the rub. What does that mean? What does it mean to love? It's a huge topic in a culture that has defined love as sentimentalism. And as used the word for physical relationships as, let's make love. But I think we have to go a lot deeper than that, about that emotional sentimentalism or that physical uh, combining. They may not, either one of those things, be an expression of love. And at times I fear, among our young people and college students, they are not expressions of love. They're just express- expressions of joining or feeling. We go to Eric Fromm, who happened to be a Jewish Freudian psychoanalyst, hardly an evangelical Christian, but somehow captured what I think the Bible says about real love. In his book, The Art of Loving, he says, obviously from the very title, that love is an art that needs to be learned, like learning to play the piano. And he ends up where I think John 3.16 ends up. Love is the capacity to give of yourself. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting love. We know, theologically, and I won't dwell much on this, that God's nature is love. I could take you to Ephesians chapter 3, but it's all there in the notes, so you can read it in days to come. In Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19, Paul says, I long for you to know how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of God, and to really come to know that for yourself. How wide is God's love? What is its scope? Well, it reaches to the most wretched of souls, as old Peter Marshall said, from the, the guttermost to the uttermost. And how long is it? Well, its season, according to Jeremiah, is everlasting. How high is it? What's its standard? I've just told you from Eric Fromm, the capacity to give of yourself, and you'll see it soon if you go up to the Capilano fish hatchery and see the salmon that have fought their way all through the ladders and end there battered and bruised so they can spawn giving of themselves. And how deep is the love of God? It's not some shallow thing. First Corinthians tells us that. Sometimes I think that when a couple gets married and they go through a normal life, not a pretend life, but a normal life, they have times when, is this child of ours going to live? Are we going to make it? Are we going to lose the house? Is the mortgage going to not be met? Or this illness that uh, the mothers had or the dads had or whatever, and you, you go through it and you stand later as you've been married for a number of years and say, sometimes it was a bit hellish. But there's something between us that has nothing to do with what kind of car, what kind of house, what kind of job, what kind of how do we look. It's something much deeper than that. And so Paul says, I want you to know what God's love is all about. It goes beyond feelings. Brenda and I were in Abbotsford some time ago. I often say, a few weeks ago, and Brenda says, "Try five years, but whatever. I was in Abbotsford a little while ago, in the past. And as we were waiting for the restaurant, it was in the ABC restaurant almost, there on the highway, this man came in, and I'll change names, I said, Sam. Now Sam was a Mennonite, so that wasn't his real name, you must know that. But Sam... I haven't seen you for 30 years. And he choked up because I had a sense what he was about to say, but I didn't know the end of the story at that point. He said, yes, I remember that night I rushed into your office. And I remember that night I was sitting in my office and he knocked at the door and he came in. he said, Bob, I want to get a divorce. I said, oh, tell me about it. I no longer feel I love my wife. And I said in simple English, what has that got to do with it? What have feelings... I said, there have been all kinds of times in my marriage and I'd only been married 20 years then. I've now been married 50. What has the fact that you don't feel like it got to do with wanting to leave her? You see, love goes beyond feelings... I don't know whether you remember the 60s and the pill and the revolution that has created the culture to what we have have now, but in that time there was a movie called Love Story. And in Love Story, this couple comes before the minister or whoever to be married. And here's what their marriage vows sounded like. This is from the movie. Often movies are propaganda. Go see The Matrix and see if movies are not about propaganda. And so the couple come together and they say, and so we pledge to live together as long as we both shall love. What they meant was, as long as we feel like this, we'll hang in. And if we don't feel like it, goodbye, try again. That is the culture in which we move. A culture, as one American psychiatrist said, is so surfeited by sex that it has lost its capacity to love, to understand love. And so God is love, and Jesus said, you must love one another. But I am saying, uh, in addition to, alongside and using the scripture, that that's not, well, I need to feel it or it's all about some sentimental idea. Love is a very tough thing, an art that is learned, and it's learned in the hardness and the toughness of life, and it's learned in the disciplines of life that you have as a Christian. I'm about to say something that may cause most of you to walk out, but I'll hang in till the end. One or two you want to stay. A part of the culture's sentimentalism, I keep hearing this, God loves us, unconditionally I think I know what people mean but I do not think that God's love is unconditional I don't think it was meant to be I don't think it ever will be see you haven't left yet so maybe I'll explain what I mean if we say that God's love is forever yes If we say there's nothing in this whole world that can keep us from God's love, yes. But John 3.16 and on to verse 36 are verses in the very gospel or part of the gospel message that tell us if we believe, we will not be condemned. Now, I don't want to get into that text. But John 15, if you continue... To obey what I say, I will go on loving you. And it's there all through the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament. God's love is broad and high and deep and wide. It's always going to be there. God will always accept us. But there are conditions. The prodigal son had to go home. And it seems to me that although this may sound like a bit semantic stuff, I can't talk about God's love being unconditional or any love being unconditional. You say, well, what if your daughter did? What if your son did? There are bigger issues than Give me a little case that if my son does something very weird that I will always love him. Of course I will always love him in that sense, but I do not offer to anybody that which God does not offer, unconditional love. The prodigal son came home. But I think maybe so you're not hurt or confused or leave mad, God's love is like the water in the tap in the kitchen or the bathroom or wherever. It's there ready to flow the moment you turn the tap on. But if you live a life that you determine is outside of what you know he wants you to be, at least during that period, the tap is turned off and God's love is not flowing to you Perhaps it's in a conditional state that you can overcome in a moment by repentance, but you do need to repent. You do need to say, I will not go on living this way in order to access the love that will always be there. But it has these conditions. That's how I understand the scripture. Love is not a sentimental thing. It seems to me that what we've done with that kind of sentimentalism is we've distorted the very word grace. Oh, by grace are we saved. God will love me whatever I do and I can do whatever I want because now I'm under grace. I am going to take time to read to you Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Because I think we live in a generation of sentimentalism in which love is a nice feeling and in which the Christian life is, well... God will accept me, whatever I do. And it's thrown out to people, maybe out of a sense of, well, you can't be too harsh on us, or you can't, whatever. Love is tough. It's beautiful, it's strong, it's redemptive, it's healing, it's releasing. But it is tough, it is not cheap. And the grace of God is not to let us do what we want, but to empower us to do what we should. I'll say that again. The grace of God is given not for us to do what we want, but to give us the power to do what we should. Now listen to what the Bible says about grace. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what the grace of God is for. It's not a handsome guy or a blue-eyed blonde that makes us look and feel good. It's a beautiful gift in order that we might be holy. Sorry to take so much about that. But when we understand God's love in a mature way, and it takes time, like learning to play the piano or work a computer takes time. We need to be patient with one another. I said that last week. When we begin to understand God's love and acceptance of us, we can love ourselves And loving ourselves goes along with, not a narcissism, you know, I'm a really nice guy, but I am accepting of God's image of me, therefore I can learn in that kind of love to be accepting of God's image of other people. The next point is John chapter 8, in which he said, if you hold to my teachings, You will be my disciples and you'll know the truth and it will liberate you and it will set you free and I've used the word obedience. What a bad word to use in this culture, obedience. But it's a biblical term. It's a most freeing term. This is not Christianity of blind legalism, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other, Christians don't dance, drink, smoke or whatever. If that were the case, my Springer Spaniel would be a Christian. She doesn't dance, drink, smoke, or go to the movies, or do anything else silly like that. No. So if this is not about some legalism, some silly set of rules. Obedience is a lifestyle choice, and Jesus says it right here. If you continue in my teachings, if you imbibe my lifestyle, if you choose the Sermon on the Mount and not the values of the culture in which you live, this is all about understanding citizenship. You probably know of Charles Dickens and how he wrote Christmas Carol and all of those kind of things, Oliver Twist, but he also wrote A Tale of Two Cities, the story of Paris and the story of London around about the time of the Revolution. This is a tale of two kingdoms the kingdom of Canada or America or whatever kingdom you want to choose and the kingdom of God. And it's an understanding that I am primarily, overwhelmingly, a citizen of the kingdom of God. I can be a good citizen of Canada, America, England, but I can never be a patriot. The moment I become a patriot, I have given allegiance outside of the only allegiance that really matters, and that is my citizenship in God's kingdom. Nobody gives us a better story than this and if I was doing this in a whole lecture series we'd spend two or three days on the story of Daniel and of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and how that they were in this Babylonian captivity. They were in a foreign land and they were told to conform to the values and the pressures and the goals and the the food of that culture. Daniel said, nope. And after a couple of weeks, instead of being thrown into prison, they began to make him prime minister. That's a very short, truncated version of the story of Daniel, but you get the idea. And I think what we have to do in our discipling today among young people and young adults particularly, who have far better access to the culture because they now know its technology, they speak its language, they experience its multiculturalism more than ever the rest of we old folks could do. We have to teach people how to be obedient to God in this alien culture. And that's what happened with with, um, Daniel and the gang. I recommend a book to you I think the staff should get the book and read it. I think the elders, deacons, whatever you have around here, should do it. And everybody should read the book by David Kinnaman entitled, You Lost Me. How many have read it? Get it. Get it on. I have it as an e-book, but you can just get it. You Lost Me by David Kinnaman in which he explains this kind of culture in which people have stopped going to church and we're losing young people left, right and center because we haven't helped them cope with the values of the kingdom of God compared with the values in the culture that's all around about them. I don't have the exact answer to why it's okay now to stop coming to church on Sunday because your kids have soccer on Sunday morning. And I don't have any rigid, legalistic, quick sort of answer for that, but what, I, what does concern me is not even that particular event itself, but the fact how quickly we default to, well I know we ought to be doing this, but this is what the culture is demanding of us, so what would you expect? Everybody goes shopping now on Sunday, except in Europe where they've got more common sense, and the stores tend to close at 12 on Saturday, but whatever. Except in England, which doesn't consider it part of Europe anyway, but there we go. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's having a Sunday afternoon nap, and there's a vision in which on the blanket there are sausages, pork sausages, and bacon sandwiches. And the Lord says, eat, Peter, and Peter says, no, Lord. And do you know what? To be a Christian, you cannot put those two words together. They are totally antithetical. You cannot look at your Lord and Savior and say, no, Lord, I won't. You're either going to say no or you're going to say Lord. And that's where I have to throw in Bonhoeffer again. Probably keep doing it till the day I die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, only she who obeys Believes. He actually said only he who obeys, but back then he didn't quite understand that women were equally part of the human race. So, only she who obeys believes. Only he who obeys believes. So, the discipleship is obedience in which we're making hard decisions. The third point fruitfulness. John chapter 15, verse 8. If you bear much fruit, you will prove to be my disciples. In our secular world fruitfulness is a synonym for success. In our culture fruitfulness is how to get to the top. In our Christian world fruitfulness is how to become what we should become. I'm not much of a botanist, not much of a scientist really, but take an apple, the best simplest way to illustrate this. You bite into the apple. And I live in the Okanagan and we get apples galore and cheap and nice and they're good. So I eat lots of apples. But it comes to a point where I can't eat anymore because it's got this hard thing with seeds in it. It's called the core. Brilliant illustration of what we're talking about. What is fruit biblically? It's the apple you eat, the casing, and it's also the seed that all reproduces itself. So I'm going to call the stuff you eat that encases the seeds. Character. Character. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, long suffering, meekness, gentleness, temperance, goodness, faith. I think the order's wrong, but I got them all in. Going to recommend another movie to you. Sit it down with people who want to go on the discipleship road, sit them down and have uh, Kevin Klein and a few others in a movie called The Emperor's Club. The Emperor's Club. You know, The Emperor Caesar, The Emperor's Club. A brilliant movie in which to discuss the nature of character in a culture in which spin and personality rules the day. N.T. Wright... A great British theologian has written a superb book about this. It's called After You Believe. And in his book After You Believe he basically says we are trying to develop character. That which Covey, in his book Habits of the Heart talks about character is the one that learns to delay gratification. If young people learned to do that they wouldn't be so deeply in debt. They wouldn't be slaves to death. They wouldn't live in the fear that, are we going to make it next week? To delay gratification, to keep promises, to be accountable, to tell the truth, to be reliable, to have routines, to serve others, to live disciplined lives, to have biblical goals. This is character. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a vital part of being a disciple. But the second part is the core with the pips, the seeds. I call that commission. I like alliteration, so. Character commission. We all know about the great commission. Go out into all the world. And in John 15, 16, in the same passage, the Father is going to be glorified as you reproduce. Now, I've got good news for you. There will only ever be in any church 10% of people who are evangelists. So the rest of you can stay home and watch television, it's okay. No, that's just a gift, to be an evangelist. People who can go and work a crowd or sit on a bus and say, Hi, my name's Sam. Have you ever heard about Jesus? Most of you would die to do that kind of thing. So, most of us, 90% of us are not evangelists. But I'll tell you what the Bible says because I'm not going to let you off the hook that easily. 100% of us are to be witnesses. And the issue, of course, today is, how do you do that? Now, like my brother Alan, he's part of the whole Vancouver Roxborough Mafia that floats around. My son is another one. Um, He said, I wonder how many evangelistic programs any church would need if its people simply learned to get to know their neighbors. And to practice the hospitality of Luke chapter 10. And to invite them into your homes. I was in another home in Victoria this week. And somebody was asking me, how can we be missional in our church? Most churches just add the word missional to what they're already doing that isn't working and call it missional. But we we have a guilt thing. We'd like to be missional. And his wife said to this man, I've known them for a long time so in my presence they could banter back and forth. Sam, every, every guy's going to be Sam and every gal's going to be Mary. Uh, trouble is, I'll probably get a Mary on one occasion when it's correct. But anyway, here goes. She said, Sam, I've told you, Bill has been asking you for two years to go to the pub and have a beer with him. I don't like beer, so I'd have a cider. Oh. Like it's in our face. It's right there. But we spend our time going to church and having meetings and debating what color will paste the basement or whatever. And you see, seed reproduces. And we are to be involved in this missional life. To live incarnationally in the neighborhood. John chapter 1 verse 14. I can give you the King James Version. It's beautiful. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's lovely. I like King James at Christmas and other times. But the message translation by Peterson, or paraphrased by Peterson, brings it right home. He takes that verse and says, here's what it means, God moved into the neighborhood. And nobody paid me to say this, This is only my second time in this church. I've only known it for a week. I came to the neighborhood one hour early last week and I came one hour and five minutes early today and I went to Starbucks and I just sat there and I said, wow, what an exciting neighborhood. We are all meant to be witnesses, cleverly disguised as plumbers, secretaries, bankers, teachers, construction workers, whatever. Matthew 5 says we are to be salt, preservative, light, illuminative, and so forth. The next point, priorities. I'm running out of time. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. This now, three times in this one passage, Jesus said this is what a disciple is, and this is tough stuff. Concerning people, he said, you can't be a disciple unless you hate your mother and father, sister, brother, and so on and so forth. Oops. That's even worse than my God's love is not unconditional. What did he mean? I hate preachers who say, well, the Greek says, or the Hebrew says. Like, I took Hebrew for four years and I forget most of it. But actually, the Aramaic sense of this term and Jesus spoke in Aramaic, The Aramaic means I don't hate, like that guy did me something wrong and I really hate it and I'm going to kill him if I can. That's hate. It means to love intensely less. And it would be a good idea if translations got that across. I wouldn't want a non Christian to read that person. To love intensely less. Best illustration I have is Brenda and I were visiting Willow Creek in, you know, with Bill Hybels and all the rest of it. And when we'd finished, we came out, and it was a hot day, and we're driving back to where we lived in Lake Forest. I said, Hon, let's get an ice cream each. Look, the big ice cream place over there. Don't know where to park. Would you mind getting it? No, I'll get it. So she goes, trotting out the road, comes back with two ice creams. I'm salivating. I'm ready. And she brought choc- chocolate ice cream. Well, that's okay for her, but I hate chocolate ice cream. She knows that I love butter pecan. She was very gracious and went back and got me a butter pecan. It was just a brain moment. It wasn't a senior moment. It was about 30 years ago don't really believe that I have this wake up in the morning with this psychological sweat hating chocolate ice cream. It's a phrase that compared with butter pecan, I hate the stuff. And that's what Jesus is simply saying. In all of your relationships, he must be the butter pecan. And that's why I said last week, something else that might have got me into trouble, there's nothing wrong with the organization called focus on the family i am not criticizing it but it's a phrase we live in a day and age when when kids are center of everything and we think that our great aim as christians is to focus on the family no it isn't no it ought never to be i didn't say don't look after your family the bible's full of ways in which we should If we focus on the kingdom of God and put it ahead of everything, you will never have a better way to raise your children. My kids all love the Lord. You know my son. And they're all serving the Lord. And they would tell you that if there was one characteristic in our family, decide dad doing these silly things and mom doing that silly thing and us being very imperfect. But what they saw was a couple Whose focus was not on their success, was not on providing them with a house with a swimming pool and a billiard table or whatever. It was a family that, that just knew its ethos was about the kingdom of God. The greatest thing you can do for your kids is for mom and dad to live for the kingdom. And then Jesus comes along and he says, And now, how about your plans? Verse 27 Except you take up your cross. What is your cross? Well, Arthur Blessed had it as a physical thing that he walked all around the world with. No problem, but that's not what's being said here. Some people say, oh, I've got this job, this boss at work. What a cross that is. Some people think it's the deacon. Some deacons think it's the pastor. But everybody has a cross to bear. Jesus, what was the cross to Jesus? Despite the terrible pain, as you see in the movie The Passion, The cross was Jesus Christ's willingness to accept the Father's plan and destiny for his life. That's what the cross was. And that's all I have time to tell you about. I remember Paul Little, whoever he was, I know he was, but most of you won't. um, He once asked a person, do you want to become a Christian? And the person said, no, it'll cramp my lifestyle. No, I don't want to become a Christian. It will cramp my lifestyle. Well, the cross is us saying my life as a disciple of Jesus is not about career success. I'm not suggesting if you've been called to be a brain surgeon you shouldn't be the best. So let's not go down that road. But it's discerning God's will. How many people leave a neighborhood, a church that they're being blessed of God in and are being used of God because somebody in Calvary tells them there's a better job with more money. See, the cross is saying, what does my father want me to do with my life? I have a story that is true. I know it's true, but I'm going to keep the details fairly private. There was a person who was high up in a milk company in Houston. I know the story. I was at the church where it happened. The church was the church of the Redeemer during the charismatic movement where God was blessing it so much it was on Time magazine. By the way, it wasn't Pentecostal or Baptist. This was an Episcopalian Anglican church, all proper. But God used this man and his wife. I met them. They were glorious people. He was offered a job in New York, as the chief executive officer of the whole outfit. And he said to them, sorry, it's not worth it to me. I've been called to do this. I'm not saying you can never go to Calgary or wherever. I've never said that. But we just do it too readily. I'm now doing this because there's more in it. There's more pay. Bigger church, whatever. He said, I won't do it. Long story short, they moved the headquarters from New York to Houston and he kept both. I can't promise that'll happen to you if, if tomorrow you're going to work and the boss says, You know what? and you say, No, I'm not moving to St. John. Okay, well, we'll move all our outfit from St. John, our cod fishing, we'll move it here, whatever. And then the possessions. 28 to 33, unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. I don't know what that means, and I've been preaching on this for years. If you give up everything, what does that mean? Well, I understand a little when I hear the vows of the old Dr. A.W. Tozer. He says there are five vows a Christian should make. I'll just tell you one of them. I know the rest. Vow never to own anything. Try to understand the life of the early church and what caused Ananias and Sapphira to move on. Try to believe that God is serious about us traveling light. Some people have just a little amount of material things and they travel heavy because they hang on to them. Some people have a lot of material things but they travel light because... They don't mean a lot to them. Materialism is not how much we have, but how it grabs a hold of us. That's all I know to do with that, and I'm going to come to the last point. I've gone five minutes over. The last word I have is devotion. In the King James Version, I I like the King James when it suits my purpose, and it does this moment. In Matthew 10... The King James Version says, and actually I think it's right at this point, a disciple is not above his master. NIV says, student, a disciple is not above his master. It is simply enough that he becomes like him. That is devotion. The Christian life is a journey into the likeness of Jesus. You know... The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm not what I will be, but one day I will be like he is, and I shall see him as he is. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. Get involved in whatever spiritual formation. I'm going to recommend another book by Kenneth Boer. It's entitled Conformed to His Image. Super down-to-earth stuff about how to do spiritual formation. It's time to stop. I'm sorry for breezing over the last one. You know what? I don't know who you are. I don't know your background. I don't know your religious stuff and all the rest of it. I just assume that you're nice to, NAB Baptists who love Jesus. But the great need of the church today, there, there are a number, but one of the great needs is for us to rediscover discipleship. And what is a disciple? You have it in your notes. The disciple is a loving person who lives in obedience to God, whose life is fruitful in terms of the character that she has and the witness that he makes, whose priorities in terms of human relationships, in terms of the plans we have for our lives, and in terms of the things we own, whose priorities are centered in the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and whose life is a life of devotion to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer and I'm going to quote a hymn. Uh, Bonhoeffer and hymns, I'll probably do that till the day I die. Let's pray. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Come unto me, your morn shall rise and all your days be bright. I came to Jesus and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life, I'll walk till traveling days are done. Amen